This is the AmbiView Audio Experience. Hey everybody, this is your man Tim, and today's episode is on the deception of money. We'll discuss the evolution of money, how it's created, and its true purpose. So stick and stay, and let's get after it. They have the ability to create debt and present it as if it is money. It's basically a bailout and exactly what happened in 2008, the promise of more keeps people going. The first forms of money were things that people could easily barter. They were the likes of livestock or obsidian. You know, things with a practical purpose such as eating or tool making. After some time, the early Chinese civilizations were the first to use standardized currencies. For example, miniature knives and spades had more of a symbolic value instead of a practical value. From knives came coins, and we can trace the first use of gold coins back to what is now modern-day Turkey. Eventually, the Roman Empire arrived on the scene and shaped our use of currency. In addition to minting coins, Rome also introduced the concept of the side profile image that we see featured on coins today. From coins, we moved to bills of exchange and paper currency. Now, bills of exchange were an early form of credit. Someone could buy goods or services and simply present a merchant with a bill of exchange. Then, that bill of exchange could be redeemed at various cities across Europe. Paper currency was originally not popular. Unlike coins, paper currency could not be melted down or used for any other practical purpose such as weapons or armor. However, paper currency was easy to print and wasn't nearly as expensive as coin production. This may seem ideal until you realize that you potentially run the risk of printing too much money. You see, at the time, paper currency was simply that, paper. It wasn't backed by anything, not gold, not silver, not copper, nothing. So what did we do? We came up with a gold standard. As a result, money could be printed and backed by a physical metal. For example, 50 pieces of paper were now equal to some amounts of gold. Eventually, we left the gold standard and most of the currency we have in circulation today does not physically exist. You see, from paper money, we created digital currency, which simply began as numbers on a computer, but is evolving into cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoins. Now, when we think of money creation, an image of a large printing press may come to mind. Well, you're right, the government does create a small portion of money, and this is done through printing at the United States Mint. Quick note that other governments have their own minting facilities, but we're focusing on the US for our conversation. Anyway, a small percentage of money in circulation is created by the US Mint, and its purpose is to meet the obligations of commercial banks. Think of people requesting cash from ATMs. Again, I mentioned that paper currency is cheap to make. It costs approximately three cents and profit depends on the face amount of the bill itself. Take a $5 bill, for example. $5 minus three cents equals a profit of $4.97. This $4.97 in profit made by the government helps to reduce government debt and the amount of taxes that need to be collected in order to pay for government programs. Okay, so that method of printing money at the US Mint 
accounts for a very small portion of the total amount of money created. Let's say roughly three to five percent. You see commercial banks create most of the money through digital currency. They have the ability to create debt and present it as if it is money. This can happen each time a new loan is requested because each time a bank issues a loan, they're not necessarily basing that loan on the amount of customer deposits or cash that they have on hand, but instead they are simply making an entry on a computer. Think about that. When banks make loans, they are creating new money. For example, let's say you buy a house and take out a $600,000 loan. With a stroke of a few keys on a computer, the bank does two things. Number one, it adds $600,000 to its account. And then number two, it issues you an IOU that says that you owe them $600,000 plus interest. You then turn around and give the seller of the home the $600,000 that they can now use for whatever they want. And voila, $600,000 of new money was created when the bank made the entry into their computer and then the $600,000 was placed into circulation when you gave it to the seller of the home. In addition to creating money from new loan requests that are not based on deposits, banks can also create money based on actual customer deposits that they do have on hand as well. Now let's say you deposit $10,000 into a bank. The bank could then turn around and loan that money out to other people. Now there was a time when banks could only loan out 90% of the deposits that they had and they were forced to keep 10% on hand as reserves. In other words, when you log into your bank account, you might see $10,000 on the screen, but that $10,000 actually represents 1,000 in currency and 9,000 in bank credits because the bank has already loaned out a portion of your deposits. Well, that's how it used to be when banks were required to keep 10% of their deposits on hand. But in early 2020, the reserve ratio was lowered to zero. And so banks are no longer required to keep a specified amount on hand. Regardless, the person receiving the money can then take that and deposit it into another bank. That bank can then turn around and lend out that money to another customer, and then they can then deposit that into another bank. That bank can then turn around and lend it to another customer, and then they can deposit into another bank, and on, and on, and on, and on. And the cherry on top? When they're not making loans, banks can invest deposits, earning a profit in the process. You see, the commercial banking machine accounts for 90 to 95% of the total amount of money created. It's pretty remarkable. Okay, so let's wrap a bow on the money creation process by talking about central banks, how it all comes together. Central banks are private entities that manage a government's money supply. How do they do this? Well, if the government needs to spend more money than it takes in from tax revenue, then it reaches out to the Treasury Department and asks them to create a Treasury bond. The Treasury then sells these bonds to commercial banks. Commercial banks then sell the bonds to the central bank at a profit. The central bank pulls out its checkbook and writes a check out of thin air to pay for these Treasury bonds. This money then goes to the U.S. Treasury. 
Then it goes back to the government to spend. As the money is spent, it then gets deposited into banks. Now banks have the deposits to loan you and me. We also get taxed on the money we earn that has been placed in circulation, and that tax money goes to the U.S. Treasury, so they can do two things. Number one, pay the principal and interest payment on those Treasury bonds, and number two, pay for government programs. In addition to Treasury bonds, central banks also at times can purchase much riskier assets like mortgage-backed securities. This provides lower interest rates and quick cash into the financial system. It's basically a bailout, and exactly what happened in 2008 after the housing bubble burst. All right, so now that we've gone through the evolution of money and how money is created, let's think through its true purpose. On the one hand, money is used to facilitate the exchange process. There were limitations with the barter system, specifically its lack of a double coincidence of wants. In other words, if you don't have what I want, then I'm not going to trade with you. On the other hand, money satisfies a private incentive to do a social good. Human behavior shows that there needs to be some form of credit given. It is what it is, but reputation matters. Oftentimes, people respond to private incentives and not idealistic social obligations. Think of a tit-for-tat strategy. You scratch my back, and I'll scratch yours. The fear of retaliation or the promise of more keeps people going. You see, a positive past reputation is rewarded, and people go to painstaking lengths to maintain it. For example, a creditor will extend favorable credit terms if you've maintained a positive reputation for paying your bills on time in the past. Since we're unable to publicly monitor all past activity and completely examine the trustworthiness of a person, money helps to serve as evidence that you will do what you say you will do and perform your part of the exchange. So at its core, money is a record-keeping tool that provides a small glimpse of a person's past contributions to society. Everything has a price. On a basic level, we pay a price for food, shelter, Netflix, all the essentials. But we also pay a price for our decisions, the jobs we accept, the places we choose to live, the people we choose to spend time with. All of these decisions have real economic impact. Now, if we're being honest, when I say the word price, most of us ask ourselves, how much money is this going to cost me? You see, over time, money has become the driving force behind our decision making. For example, when or if I will get married, when or if I will retire, when or if I will start a business. Many of the decisions that we make are based on money. But what if we think money is just a mirage that is more valuable than it actually is? Would that change your perspective on how you approach life? Let's find out. And there you have it the deception of money. With that, my friends, it's been my pleasure and thank you for listening to this episode. I'm Tim Jones and as always, please remember to share it and follow us. Also, be sure to check out the video version of this episode on YouTube as we have some great visuals to drive these concepts home. Keep grinding, stay safe, and I'll see you next time.